In this episode of Boss Files, Under Armour founder and CEO Kevin Plank. To really understand Under Armour, you have to hear the story of how it all began. So I sat down with CEO Kevin Plank to talk about how he bootstrapped big time to build this company. The Under Armour CEO is betting billions on the city of Baltimore. Why he's making that bet and what he thinks it can mean ultimately for American jobs and innovation. We sat down in June in Baltimore. Welcome to Baltimore. Welcome to it's City Garage and Under Armour. It's yeah. good to be here. We spoke last a year ago and I got excited about the idea of talking to you about this city because a lot of what I care about and what I report on is sort of the forgotten or the opportunity gap for a lot of people. And I think in many ways Baltimore is emblematic of that and it's all about jobs, which right. you talked about in your remarks. What is this, and how does this play into that? What is the lighthouse? Uh, America is a much bigger country than Los Angeles and New York, and so we you sometimes do. Yeah, we forget about <laughs> all these other amazing cities and stories that are happening inside of them. So Baltimore, I think, is, you know, particularly in the last 12 months with what happened with the tragedy around Freddie Gray and other things, I think, you know, the the world or at least the country took an opportunity to sort of brand uh, the city of Baltimore in one way. And so, you know, in what way? What is that? How, uh, how do you think the world sees Baltimore? I, I don't think, you know, I think that, that like, cities, great cities are about editing. Like, there's, typically, there's, in every city, there's great things, but there's also some not-so-great things. And again, what came through, what's come through recently in Ferguson, what's come through in Baltimore, is that you see this strife that's happening in, um, you know, on, 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 on both sides that, like, we haven't solved the problem that we have. And the one issue that comes up every day, when you see that strife, is like, it all comes back to jobs at some level. You know, that the, the, um, when you compare the likes of uh, Detroit and you compare the likes of a Baltimore or Cincinnati or Charlotte or any place, like there's typically two cities inside of every, every, every major urban area in America is living and battling with this idea of being a part of two cities. And so we're very excited to talk about editing out some of the amazing things that we have going on. And I think articulating all that through something as you know, acute as City Garage is a really, you know, interesting opportunity for us and we're proud to do that. You've called this a tale of two Baltimores. Yeah, yeah. What Baltimore do you see? Uh, well, I know that when I was watching um, uh, last year and I'm watching Anderson Cooper on CNN and he's talking about Baltimore is burning is the headline that's across the screen and I'm sitting there in my waterfront, uh, you know, Inner Harbor office and I'm looking out and saying, I don't see any of this. And you're wondering and going, so what's the role that you know, any company has in a city? And so the number one job we have to do, and I want to be really clear, is to stay in business. You know, we're going to hire you know, over 800 people to our corporate, just corporate this year. And you think about the best thing we can do is keep growing, keep driving, uh, and keep our company you know, running in the right direction. And so you know, I'll tell you is that I don't take a political tone. I understand the importance of what we do, which is hiring people, which is building out, and hopefully doing things like what this is about is opening Lighthouse today is about bringing manufacturing, bringing jobs back to America, and truly being able to empower people with that ability to, you know, to feel good about the products that they buy and, and frankly who made them. You say what a company means to a city or a company's role in a city. Do you think that Under Armour, Kevin, has an obligation to this city? Do you feel that? So I don't believe that any city needs a company, but I certainly believe that companies can help cities. And so, no, I mean, I, I, I think, look, I'm from Maryland. You know, I'm from here, so this wasn't about, um, you know, we've recently announced, you know, building our, our corporate headquarters and expanding and what that means, and really just because we ran, we ran out of room. And uh, we found ourselves trying to go through things like politics and 
asking people and things, we realized, you know, we have the resources and the reach to frankly do it ourselves. And so there wasn't a negotiation that we took with the state or the city or anybody else. Uh, we bought real estate. We said, this is where our new corporate headquarters is going to be. You know what? It's going to be like the greatest, uh, it's going to be the greatest example of when you think about Under Armour, it's going to be the articulation of, of, you know, scientists and lab coats walking around, redeveloping the next great fiber or fabric or, or, or hyper material that's going to be able to keep you, you know, cool when it's warm or, or warm when it's cool. I mean, um, you know, it's going to be athletes, it'll be, you know, all the things that you think it could be, and we can build all that right here in Baltimore, but it has to start with one, one strike of, 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 of innovation, and that innovation is, is the brand Under Armour. You've talked about Port Cummington, which is this entire sort of development, what this is going to be, not only Under Armour headquarters, but a whole lot more as a front porch, if you will, to Baltimore. Right. What does the project in total mean for the city of Baltimore? What's your vision? Well, I think the, the energy was um, recognizing the growth of Under Armour. I mean, the, the, key, the key word there is that, you know, nearly 260 acres of downtown waterfront property that, frankly, what made it, what made it as, as important for us to make that the location was Route 95. 225,000 cars a day driving through the city of Baltimore. And today, frankly, there's not a lot that distinguishes the cities on, on the Northeast Corridor, whether it's, you know, Baltimore or Wilmington or Philly or Newark or, or, you know, as you get through that sort of corridor, so saying, what are things that can make a difference? And frankly, you know, Under Armour is a story that can be told. And You want we, those cars to pull off here in Baltimore? I want them to see, I want them to drive through, and I want them to say, wow, there's something great happening in this city. You know, I mean, I, I think that the, the story of, you know, look, if you're going to invest somewhere in the world, you'll look and you'll say, you know what, if I had to invest somewhere in the world and I'm coming from outer space, I'd probably pick America. I'm going to pick America, I'd go, you know, the Northeast Corridor is a pretty good spot. And you're going to say, well, well New York is New York. You know, you know, D.C., cat's out of the bag there, and you're watching the growth of government. And you're saying, so what differentiates, you know, my friends in Philly from Newark or Wilmington or someplace else? And like, Baltimore, we're 36 miles from D.C., you know, we're two hours and 12 minutes in the Acela to New York City. Uh, you know, it's, it could be an amazing city that's built on this harbor. And when people drive through the city, I want them looking to, you know, off to their left or off to the right, depending on which way they're heading. I want them to say, like, look at what's great is happening there. At any given time today, we're employing somewhere between 250 to 300,000 people are making Under Armour something at some place around the world, depending on the surges that we have in inventory, et cetera, uh, and demand. And you're wondering and going, so in the next, you know, three or four years, we're going to effectively double the size of our company. And we're going to basically create another two to 300,000 new additional jobs. How many of those jobs expect to come back to America? And the answer today is like relatively zero. And look, I was, you know, when I started the company in 1996, it was, you know, three years in, I was in Bel Air, Ohio, right at the Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania border with a guy named Sal Fasciana, who was the plant manager. And I remember him telling me and saying, I'm sorry, kid, but Speedo USA just pulled out and sent all the production to Mexico. And your company and your business isn't big enough. I think we were on our way to a, a million, three or five million dollars at the time. You don't have enough capacity to actually keep our doors open. So I watched 186 sewing operators, sewing operators. These, it was like average age, 56-year-old, mostly women. And they were being told by, you know, their, the, the, the union that they were going to be retrained and do something else. And it wasn't, this wasn't a union issue or anything else. This was just a, like a, a shift that we, manufacturing base is not as important. And I'll never forget the looks in their faces. And I remember from that, I ended up hiring the line supervisor that was working on Under Armour. And I hired her boyfriend. And then I hired you know, two more sewing operators. And we set up shop in a, little, uh, in a little house in Moundsville, West Virginia. And we started my first manufacturing line. And like I had this, you know, we're going to stand on the soapbox and we're going to make product in America. And the fact of the matter is that that was an uphill battle then. 
Um, and then we've fallen to it just like everybody else. And I look and say, you know, somebody, there should be an effort for us to bring back a manufacturing base in this country. And I think if we're going to have that type of growth, um, you know, we should have things that can, you know, help us actually achieve that goal. When you look at a label on an Under Armour shirt or shoes right now, you're right, it doesn't say made in America. Yeah. Your goal with Project Glory and Local for Local sounds to me like you're really trying to change that. But are we really talking about a day when a majority of the Under Armour products say made in America? Is that economically possible? I think what I think what's important again, the issue that comes up when you ask about, you know, what happened after the Freddie Gray after the Freddie Gray incident and what happened you know, in Ferguson or any place else, it's like all these things come back to, you know, the, the, the plight that we see in our inner cities, it comes back to jobs. Um, and I think it's a real crime that we don't have enough of it. And there's no plan right now. And we're saying, and this isn't about handouts and this isn't about, um, you know, they're just helping our brother. We should be helping our brother, but we should be helping by empowering them with the two most powerful words in the world, which to me are self-made. You know, it's not a handout, it's not anything else. And I think the opportunity that we have is to truly you know, think, how can we bring manufacturing back? Is it, is it, is, and the way we do that. So I think a great example for this is you look at in the technology industry. And so in um, smart people work in technology, you know, the smartest people in the world, they're going to work for Goldman Sachs and they're going to work for Google and they were going to work for Apple. And that's why basically the innovation that we find in something as simple as a cell phone that fits in my back pocket today, you know, just 15 or, or, or less than that, even 10 years ago, would have taken you know that 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 computer that sits in our back pocket. It would have taken a, a Greyhound bus-sized mainframe computer, and it wouldn't have taken a picture or played music. And you have to ask yourself and say, like, why have they been able to transition so hard? There's so many people focused on how do we actually bring that technology to consumers. The fact is, in my industry, I think that my industry should be held to a, a greater standard. They should be held more accountable. Is that why is it that in in 10 or 15 or less than 20 years? We can transition like that in technology, mm -hmm. but in apparel and footwear, we still make a shirt and a shoe the exact same way that we did 100 years ago. Because it's cheaper. It's just no one has been forced. The hand has been forced. You don't hear the you don't hear anybody talking about it. It's like as long as my shirts are there and my shoes are there. But you have them people saying like, why isn't it made in America? The fact is, I watched Made America disappear when I started Under Armour in 1996, and I drove to the garment district in New York City. So 1965, apparel the amount of apparel consumed in America mm -hmm. was roughly 95% uh, of apparel consumed in America was made in America. By like 1985, it was at like 75%. By 1995, when I started the company, it was at 50%. But so what are you saying? I mean, Today, it's less than 5% of apparel consumed in America is made in America. And you look at that and say, should we really accept that? But what are you saying? Are you saying that I'm going to have to pay $50, $100 for my t-shirt to have it made here? Or are you saying you can do it with the same economics and the same, you know, you have a responsibility to your shareholders. Yeah. Yes. And consumers have a ceiling on what they're going to pay. So what I saw play out in the tour is that advanced technology, robotics, make it much more efficient that a machine can replace a lot of the work being done overseas in the low-cost labor markets and be done here and yet you hire additional people here to do the other human side of it. Is that what you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, no, no, it's, 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 it's more than that. It's, it's, it's that this is meant to be the tip of the spear for how should product be, be produced. Is that, let me be clear too. 
Consumer's not going to walk in and go, oh, there's a Made in the USA label. I'm willing to pay $10 more. The consumer is really not willing to pay like right. a cent more. I know. And it's sad to say because everyone says, should be Made in America. I'd love to do it. And then you actually challenge them. They're not going to do it. But everyone loves it as a feel-good item, as like a gift with purchase. Like if we can do it for you and at least meet that, that price expectation, and, and that may be a little overplayed. They're, they're, you could put a premium on it. I mean, the shoes that I'm wearing today were actually printed here in Baltimore, Maryland. And you look and say, like, you know, it's the UA architect, but it's a $300 shoe. And so, like, we can have statement products like that, but you have to start somewhere. And so we're looking and saying, if we can, through all of our manufacturing, we're, we're doing, again, the majority of which, 95% of our manufacturing is outside the United States as well. But if we can create a facility here where we can truly understand it, we can have our own engineers, our own designers, our own innovators here in Baltimore that are working, our product line managers that are working and saying, there may be a best practice for this. There may be a better way for us to engineer or a better way for us to do this. And then we can bring that to some of our manufacturing overseas. Again, to make a, a shoe today, it's, it's, it can be anywhere from 140 to 300 different sets of hands to make a single pair of shoes. And you're going, if that cost structure was like lower and we could figure out how to get it down to, you know, 30 or 40 sets of hands, those are the kind of things you could bring it here. And again, there would be the ability to pass on that, that price other places, but there's so many of the benefits to today on in our industry, we're working an 18 month lead time mm -hmm. from design to yeah. actually printing product and actually selling product at store. And you look and say, there must be a better way for us to do this. So are you saying that your ultimate goal here would be more jobs in the United States producing Under Armour gear. Not all Under Armour gear is going to be made in this country. It's just not yeah. going to happen. But you're seeing fewer overseas jobs and more here. Yeah, I, as, as good as you can do. But is we're that, not it, saying we're not saying any. We're saying we're just going to take the first step. Okay. Because right now there's no one who's coming to us. The United States government isn't coming and saying we really want to incentivize you to bring manufacturing back. But what about all these politicians that are talking about bringing jobs back? So I, I think it's said, but I don't know what he was talking about bringing back in manufacturing. It's 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 one thing for, and you saw, I mean, the great support. Don't get me wrong. In order for us to put this together, it took an incredible combination between the support from the city and the state and even the federal. There were people from the White House that were here today. So that's happening. But make it actionable. You know, look, I, I get invited and, and you attend plenty of entrepreneurship conferences. Right. But to see, like, what does that mean to be an entrepreneurship conference? Like, what are we doing to truly, like, I get it, we're making things, but we're making more apps. And frankly, we are becoming more digital. And so we're going to have an issue that we're going to see with jobs will continue to exacerbate itself. And so unless we figure out how to take some of these easy sort of no-brainer jobs that currently are, again, for Under Armour's sake, will be hundreds of thousands of jobs employing people outside of America. And this isn't just a Made in the USA campaign either, is that number one, our ambition is to be a global company. We don't just want to be a, a, an American or a mm -hmm. Maryland or a, or a Baltimore company. Mm -hmm. We want to be a global citizens. And that means that you know, people in, in, in Sao Paulo, they want product built in Brazil. People in Europe, you know, they want product that is from there. Like people in America, we want things from here. And again, it has to make business sense. You know, this can't be something that's just relying on, on the virtue or, or the good intent of, yeah. of any one individual um, business person, is that it's got to make great business sense. And then we're doing this because we think we can make better product, we think we do it more efficiently, be closer to the, to the market uh, with shorter timelines and save ourselves on shipping and production and warehousing and all those other kind of things that come into it. Port Covington as a whole, when you look all in, how many net new jobs, full-time jobs, do you expect to come here? Thousands to tens of thousands. So if it works, now again, this is a long putt. So I'll be clear, I think people sort of look at it and say, oh, boy, they've got it all figured out. Like, we took this old industrial portland that nobody would touch. We made 
13 or 14 different acquisitions of, of over 45 different parcels of land to assemble 260 acres of downtown Baltimore waterfront underneath of 95. Now, this is, this is land that needs remediation. It's old industrial. There was no one we kicked out. There were no living neighbors that we had in any of the properties that we bought. So think about that. We're saying, you know what? We see a vision here for us to make something greater. And with the impetus of Under Armour, with that 50-acre flag that we stick in the ground, we think that we can build a center of energy that can actually flow over and be more. Like the one thing that's really important that we talk about at our new campus is there are no walls to our new campus. Yeah. You know, is that safety and security? But like, let the energy of our campus, of our you know, thousands of young people, average age 29 years old of our, our average employee, like let that bleed out into the city and like let the city bleed in us. And maybe not the best word to use, but like let's let like, let the energy build. And that's why having things like this of a, of a center of creativity that other entrepreneurs can look at and say, man, like, ah, you know, the fact that half a millennials believe the American dream is dead is probably one of the things that I'm more proud of about Under Armour every day is that I love inspiring little boys and little girls to throw on an Under Armour t-shirt or pair of shoes and go, man, I can do anything because I'm wearing Under Armour. You say if it works. And you yeah. emphasized if. Yeah. How risky of a bet is this? Uh, I mean, Under Armour will have a campus there, but it's like what other things can go with the campus? But I don't want people, I don't want people living in the suburbs, driving into our city, going to work, and then leaving. Yeah. That's, that's not failure, that's a missed opportunity, right? So we have the opportunity to take the growth of our company that, again, we said would be $7.5 billion by 2018. Today, the last time the, the Baltimore Ravens played the Buffalo Bills, the article written in the Wall Street Journal simply said, the only two NFL cities without a Fortune 500 company. And you look at that and say, what a miss. So the ability for us, again, that, that rate is you know, a little above $5 billion. So you know, returning a Fortune 500 company to a city like Baltimore, we're incredibly proud of that, but we're not gonna stop there. You've said that you want to make Baltimore the coolest city in the world. Yeah. You mean it. What I believe is, is that I want the ambition. So if I said, like, what's the big vision for Port Covington, for our company? It's to utilize the growth of our brand, of our company, um, to really be able to drive and build, um, to inspire the 22-year-old graduating from college in you know, 15 years, 10 years, maybe it's five years from now. And maybe they're going, you know what, what are you going to do when you get out of school? And they'll say, you know, I got a, I got a one in 10,000 chance of, of getting, a shot, getting a job at Under Armour because it's so hard, you know, to get a job there. But either way, I'm going to move to Baltimore because it's like the coolest city in the world. And like, if you can accomplish that, like talk about, you know, figuring out, you know, how to win, that would be great. That would be great. I report a lot on the city of Detroit, for example. And you've seen Detroit go through a lot of the same struggles as Baltimore. And it ultimately all comes down to jobs and missed opportunities. You've said this isn't just a Baltimore story, this is an American story. Yes. What happens, Kevin, if things like the investment Under Armour is making here don't happen? What happens yeah. to American-American cities without sort of moonshots? Yeah. I don't know, but what I, 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 I mean, I'd, I'd hate to sit here and try to guess what that would be or what that would look like. But I do know that if it does work, like imagine if we could crack this code. Like imagine if we could actually crack, crack and figure the formula out for like, Again, Ferguson and Baltimore, I thought were you know pretty unfair, and the whole world's you know this, the country at least is looking going ah oh, look at these poor these cities and like don't pity us, and then again don't deal with it as like oh that's too bad for your city and whether it is Detroit or whether it's you know the articles of the bad press they've had and Dan Gilbert is a great visionary man who's inspired me on many levels as well and we've been able to share notes on sort of the things that Dan's doing in, in Detroit and what we're doing here and going like instead like this is an American problem like go to any American city mm -hmm. that you're not driving through two parts of it 
where it was on, on the day of the Freddie Gray incidents, that it wasn't you know, somebody sitting in a corporate office somewhere and looking out and saying, there's a different world that's happening. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, you know, whether it's the, the murders or the other things that are happening in, in some of the rates that you see you know, in any city, you know, that's not reflected, I think, uh, through the city that many see. And, and again, it paints a bit of an unfair narrative, but it's one that's gotta be dealt with. And that means we need to support our law enforcement, we need to support our, our politicians, we need to support our cities themselves. Mm -hmm. And again, the best way that I can think for Under Armour to be able to do that, keep growing and, and, and have more jobs, hire more people. And again, make sure that it's a diverse workforce that actually is inclusive of the people of this city. So to people who might hear that and say, what? This is a company where, as you said, 95% of their goods are made overseas. Yeah. What do you say to them? Uh, I, I say, you know, look, start with the intent. I mean, uh, there's no manufacturing in this country. Like, I, I don't know how to say it any, any easier, but I started in, in grandma's basement making my first shirt, uh, and then I went to a, a little a tailor in Beltsville, Maryland, to, a, uh, to, the, to New York City, uh, and then out of New York City to Afreda, Pennsylvania, to Allentown, Pennsylvania, to Bel Air, Ohio, back to Baltimore, Maryland, and then finally I just said, like, we can't keep up with the production because we ran out of shops. Yep. And at the time, this is 98, 99, 2000, it was like, Manufacturing was closing down. The mills were closing down in the Carolinas. Like I, we've been there. I've watched it happen, and now it feels like it's time that the dust is beginning to settle. Yep. And now it's like, so what can we do? So now we're finally in a position where, first and foremost, again, we got to keep driving. You know, we're we're in a pretty competitive market. So this isn't like Under Armour's job is to solve the the, uh, the the job issue in America. We're just going. You think we can make a couple steps? And with that, we think that you know that can lead to some pretty good, great, and positive things. So you mentioned the word competition. Is the word Nike even uttered in these halls? Oh my God, I can't believe you said that when you walked in here. No, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, no, but look, we have, we have very good competition. You know, they're very good at what they do. Uh, and we have great respect for them too. It doesn't make us like them. It doesn't mean they like us. And it means that they do the kind of things that big companies do to little companies. And it means that we have the kind of advantages that little companies can do to big companies. So is it a fair fight? I don't know if it's a fair fight, but uh, we're in the fight. And uh, you know, this isn't, I'm 43. Uh, I got no better ideas of what else to do for uh, about the next uh, several decades. So I think going out and building the biggest, baddest brand on the planet that becomes the number one sports brand in the world is probably a pretty good ambition. What's gonna tell you you did it, you made it? Um, I don't know. I think. Like there's been a lot of celebration. One thing that I've learned is, you know, this year we celebrate our 20th year in business, and um, you know, we we weren't great, you know, for a long time. Is that, you know, is that we're just running so hard. You know, one of the things that somebody said at Under Armour, like when you have so much growth, you know, we've had 24 consecutive quarters of 20 plus percent yeah. top line revenue growth, is that being. Um, sometimes at Under Armour, it's like being at Under Armour is like you know, if you went to the county fair, and like the biggest event at the county fair would be the pie eating contest. And it's like where the county commissioner would come out and they'd be hosting it. And all of a sudden you go out and you, you tie your hands behind your back and you go to the pieting contest and you're winning the pieting contest. And then your reward for winning the pieting contest is more pie. It's like, welcome to growth. Welcome, like getting back on the saddle. Welcome to happening. And like, that's something that really struck me. And like, I don't want to be that company. Like I want to be having a great time with that. I want to be celebrating our wins. I want to be, you know, having fun. And, um, you know, that's, that's important. And over 20 years, like, you learn all kinds of different lessons, and we've, lear we've learned a lot of them. But, like, I, I, think, I think the upside is, is that if we're right, like, if what, what we have, and, you know, I'm going to go back just to the idea of, like, what's the opportunity? 
if we can say that the growth of an Under Armour that I don't think comes every day, and I say that you know humbly, but I agree, I believe it doesn't come every day. Take me back to the toll booth. Did yeah. you really cry in a toll booth? Uh, it was like a little after the toll booth that I cried. It was like when I <laughs> when I went home. It was, I think it was like just before. So this is a the, the story was I was um, uh, on Fridays. You know, sometimes like back in the early days, I would I would actually head to. Uh, lots of, um, up to um, Atlantic City, and I would try to um, basically increase increase the size of my bank account. So I would go to the bank about 1:59 p.m. I'd withdraw everything that I had uh, from the bank, and leaving myself a little bit of room. And I'd come back on the following, uh, and realize I had to have the money back in the bank by 9:01 a.m. on Monday morning. So I went and I withdrew uh, I withdrew a bit of that money. Uh, everything in my bank account, drove to Atlantic City, filled my car up with gas before I left, um, drove up Route 40 out, out to AC, and by the time I got there, uh, I got down, I, I withdrew like 2500 bucks. Uh, I needed like 5000 to cover the checks that I had in the checking account, and I went out, and sure enough, I was playing, playing cards, and I made the 2500 bucks. And so I was at five grand, and I was good, and then it was like, ah, one more shoe, and you how many people all. have lived this world? I didn't bet at all. <laughs> but I bet like, I put like, you know, I'm going to do one more hand and I'm going to put, you know, $200 down. And all of a sudden I got a pair of eights and then they had to split the eights. And then I got another pair of eights and like, and it was this bad thing that ended up in one hand and going like, well, I had to do that. Next thing you know, I lost money. I was like, well, let me just play one more hand. And it's a classic story that any gambler sees. I basically ended up walking out of Atlantic City with nothing. And thank goodness that I filled my car up with gas. And as I drove back, I realized that I was broke. And I wasn't like kind of broke. Like, you know, like broke is like, ah, oh, I don't I don't have any money left, but I'm still, you know, paying my rent and doing this. Like, like not no change in my car. You like, were really broke. Like that kind of broke. And when I came through, I ended up uh, that day having to um, live in the reality of going back to my mother's my mother's house. When, you know, I came through and, and I was thinking to myself, it's it's kind of over. And it wasn't like a belief of it's over, but I remember like stopping on the side of the road and just sitting there. And it might have been the last time that I, I physically remember tears coming from my face. What year was this? Roughly how long 97 ago? 97-ish, you know, something like that. And I remember I went to my mom's house for dinner. And, you know, one of the things that's probably, you know, illustrative as anything is she wasn't the greatest cook. And so going there was wonderful to see her, uh, but not great for the food. Uh, but the P.O. box where, that I kept for Under Armour was right next to my mom's house. So as I went home... Um, I went to her house and she said, how's everything going? I'm a big advocate of, you know, optimism is a free stimulus. I'm like, right. oh, everything's great. Don't worry about it. And she said, you, you, you doing okay? I was like, yeah, yeah, we're doing fine. We're doing fine. And that's when like, I walked back out of the house like, <laughs> like uh, basically again. And uh, after dinner that night, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I didn't, I didn't pick the right one. This wasn't the right choice. And um, I went after the wrong thing. It's a real shame. And then when I went up to the P.O. box, um, it was actually our, our, our accounting wasn't perfect then, but I had this, this, old receivable from Georgia Tech. Hmm. And inside was a check for, uh, it was like close to $8,000. It kept you going. And I remember thinking to myself, like opening that P.O. box, pulling that out and seeing this institutional check and going, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And then I crack it open and see nearly $8,000. It was like, back in business, like be at wow. it tomorrow, I'll never doubt myself again. And, and that was basically it. That was the last time that I ever really questioned, said, Am I, did I pick the right idea? Am I doing the right thing? Yeah, I had read you've said you never really thought that Under Armour couldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a much better way. People, do you pinch yourself? Are you impressed? Do you believe it's you know, a good thing, a great thing? Um, I, never, I never believed 
you know, I, the answer I love to give is that while you know I never knew exactly what it was going to look mm -hmm. like with the roadmap or the company or the products or any mm -hmm. of those things, like I just truly I never believed it couldn't happen. And I think there's a lot of people that wake up every morning saying, you know, it'll you know not for me. This won't happen there. This would never this would never work. It's like, why not? Why not us? Why not me? Why not why not our team? Why not this city? Why not why not Under Armour? What do people not know? about the story of Under Armour, because this is a pretty well-known story now, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And you are, you and this company, I think will be a case study in the business, top business schools across America for many, many years. But what do folks not know about how you got here, why this is happening, why Baltimore? Uh, I, think there's, I think there's still a lot more, uh, there's, a lot more to this, there's a lot more to the Under Armour story uh, than a kid you know, in the garment district or at a grandma's house in Georgetown. And the most exciting thing to me is probably the new story that's being written every day. You know, this is a great chapter in what's happening. Is, you know, we end every presentation with that same line. You saw it in the, in the, in the video that we ran inside. It just says, you know, we're just getting started. And that idea is like probably what's most exciting to me is, is you know, when I do it, I remember I had somebody once said to me, is that don't ever, don't ever get tired of telling that grandma's house story. And I won't, and, and I will. Um, if I can talk to like some of the interns that we have here, some of the kids from Baltimore City that get to come and see yeah. it and go like, why not you? Why couldn't you do it? I, I didn't have any money. I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing either. Did anyone big bet on you? Because from what I understand of your story, there was no sort of one person that made a big bet on you or that you attribute this to, right? Uh, I mean, look, I was, I, was um, I you know, great support uh, from my mother, from my, my, my family that helped early. Uh, my father passed away very when I was 19 years old, and that was something for me that you know, I look at it and say it was, it was almost, I see people limited sometimes by people they look up to too much. And that to me was one of the things where I realized that, you know, I was, it was the ambition I really asked why I went to go play football. I just wanted to, I wanted to earn a scholarship. I wanted to get off the payroll of my parents. I didn't want to, I wanted to be my own man. I wanted to be my own person. I wanted to be, you know, I didn't want to be defined by uh, anyone else. And I see a lot of times I see people leaning on, you know, parents or trusted advisors or others that just don't have, um, like, I, I think they're speaking from a place that probably isn't as heartfelt. Like, if I listened and asked anybody that would listen to me, do you think Under Armour is a good idea? Like, there was nobody in 1996 going, way to go, kid. You're going to put your entire savings into this? You bet your whole career on it? And you're going to go borrow money and go into debt for it, too? Like, Everybody I talked to said, you're crazy. There was no big, there was no one person, there was no big investor. You're crazy, we don't need better t-shirts. Uh, yeah, why would anybody want to put women's lingerie on their body? And I'm like, a lot of women like putting women's lingerie <laughs> on their body, right? <laughs> Some men do too, when so you, it's like, okay. When you bring up the death of your father, I know my father died when I was 15, mm -hmm. and I feel like I've lived my entire adult life trying to make him proud and just driving so hard. Yeah. Um, what impact did your father's death have on you as you built this company? Um, I think, you know, again, it, it taught me that there was no one person. Like, the one thing it's interesting is when, when entrepreneurs come up to me and, and, and ask me and say, can you give me one piece of advice? Like, tell me one thing that's yep. going to sort of change my world. And it's like, there is no one thing. Like, there's like... I've been fortunate enough to meet all the, the most of the great ones, and whether it's Howard Schultz or Richard Branson and, and like all these amazing entrepreneurs, and there's not one thing that anybody does. You know, when I think about you know how my dad related to that, I think sometimes people are, are looking and going like, ah, oh, dad told me not to do it, mom told me not to do it. There is no oracle, 
right? There is no one person that you can go to who has all the answers that just says, don't worry, like I'm gonna make your life easier. The hardest thing about being on your own is that you have to make those decisions. And again, it's whether, I, I encourage companies with, with you know, less than, I don't know, 50 million in revenue, at least, at least 100 million in revenue, like don't get a board of directors. Like you don't want somebody coming in and advising you yet that doesn't really know or under, because I don't think you're going to attract smart enough or big enough people right. that would actually be able to give you great advice is that, you know, the, the local taxidermist or the local, um, you know, I don't want to detract from any one trade, but like to be an entrepreneur is hard and there's a lot of decisions and somebody's showing up and saying like, you didn't ask me that question and you should really lean on me. Like you need to have enough strength and conviction to actually make the best decision for your company, not what somebody else saw in their limited experience in a field that's probably not related to you. So you like to quote the philosopher Mike Tyson, yeah. who says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. When did you get punched in the face? Which time? <laughs> I mean, no, we've, like, we felt it over and over. There was no venture capital. There was no, um, you know, Somebody says, my gosh, you're, this, you're, you're a genius. You're gonna be the next great entrepreneur. I, I was a kid who was selling lemonade. I was, I, was, I was mowing lawns, I was shoveling snow, I was parking cars, I was bartending, I was bouncing, I was doing like whatever yeah. it could just to get through. And, and you know, somehow you have to find a way. There was, you know, one of the things I'm probably most proud of at Under Armour as well is that I'd hate to think that the three most important jobs in America are the administration directors to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of at Under Armour is that like, yeah, I went to state school and um, you know, I didn't have it all figured out and, and, and I didn't finish the top of my class. I was, I was, a, I was a good student, um, but I wasn't in high school. And it was just like the maturation is that don't let kids get labeled and don't label yourself or let anyone else especially label you, you know, in the early years of when you're just getting started in your business or your company is that you know, it's up to you and it truly is. It's this idea of manifest destiny that if you believe it, like if you have that unbelievable optimism that like I can do it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.